And the, we can summarize our passage that we are saved by God's grace alone for the purpose of the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So this passage is a short passage of three verses, but we can break it into really two things. He starts by talking about the source of our salvation, and then he moves to the intended result of our salvation. So he starts with the source, and he says, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So kids, what is grace? We use that term all the time, but do we really understand what that means? And we've heard descriptions of that grace a number of times through the book of Ephesians, but what is that grace? So we might use a fancy term like God's unmerited favor, which basically means we get something good um, that we don't deserve or we haven't earned. Um, the late James Montgomery Boyce uh, recounted a story because sometimes stories help describe things a little bit better than pithy definitions. And it's a story that one of his predecessors at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia told. And it was about a man named Henry Morehouse who lived in the 1800s in one of the worst slums in London. And this man was walking through the slums of London and he saw this young girl walk out of this shop and she had a pitcher full of milk that she had just purchased. And as she began to walk home, she slipped and she fell and she broke the pitcher and it shattered on the ground and all the milk spilled out. And she began crying. And this man looked at her and said, little girl, are you okay? And she said, my mama, she's going to whip me. My mama, she's going to whip me. And he said, don't worry, little girl. Uh, your mom, I promise you, your mama's not going to whip you. And as he and she, as she was crying and he saw the pieces of pottery on the, on the ground, he, he bent over and he said, look, these pieces aren't so small. And he began to pick them up. And as she, he began to pick them up, she saw what he was doing and she stopped crying. And she had hope. And he picked up these pieces of pottery and began to try to fit this pitcher back into place. But as he began to do it, then the, the pitcher fell apart again. And she began to cry again. He said, don't worry, don't worry. We'll, we'll get this taken care of. I promise you that your mom is not going to whip you. And he continued to try, and she was helping him. And they got it all put together except for the handle. And he handed her the handle, and she put the handle on, and the whole thing shattered again. And she began crying. He said, she said, my mama's going to whip me. And he said, don't worry. Your mama's not going to whip you, I promise you. And so he picked the little girl up in his arms, and he went to a nearby shop, and he bought a brand-new pitcher. And then he carried her and the pitcher to the store where she had bought the milk. And he paid with his own money to fill that pitcher with milk. And then carrying the pitcher and the little girl back home, he set her on her uh, patio or her porch and gave her the, the pitcher of milk. And he said, here, take this into your mother. And he said, do you think that your mama is going to whip you now? And he said, oh, no, this pitcher is far better than the pitcher that we had before. And kids, that's a picture of God's grace to us. That girl, it, it, it was her problem. It wasn't that man's problem. He was under no obligation to help her. He had simply saw her and he had compassion on her and he wanted to help her out of his own kindness. And he, at his own expense, took his time and then his money to fix this problem and to bring her back uh, to her, her mother and solve this problem for her. And friends, understand that that's what our God has done for us. Because what we heard 
all of last week in verses 1 to 3 is that the problem that we have is our problem. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to walk. And we were enslaved to our passions. We were rebels against the Almighty God and worthy of his wrath. But God in his compassion and his love came and sent his son to rescue us. He did all the work. He did the, the rescuing from our slavery. We would, we would never have asked for this help, just like this little girl hadn't asked for help. We wouldn't have asked because there was nothing we wanted to do with the Almighty God, and yet God stooped down to show us grace. In fact, for salvation to happen, God must do it all, all of it, from the gift of faith to sending his son to rescuing us and uniting us to him. That is, my friends, is grace. And Paul says confidently, we are saved by grace. By grace, you have been saved. God has extended his grace to you and you are saved. But then he says, we are saved by grace through faith. Notice that he doesn't say we're saved by faith. And that's important. It's it's through faith. Faith is the channel through which God's grace pours to our thirsty souls. It's, um, it's this faith that allows us to receive that grace that God has extended to us. Faith is necessary, but it's not the means. It is, it is simply the vehicle uh, by which we receive that grace. And, and what is that faith? We, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago. There's three components to faith. There is a knowledge of the thing that we are believing. There is an assent, meaning that we are accepting it as true. And then there's an aspect of commitment, where we are beginning to live as though we really believe that what we are believing is true. Um, and there is always an object to our faith. And if you remember in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Ephesians and he said in uh, verse 15, if you take a look down, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. It's a faith that has an object in the Lord Jesus. And we say that a lot, but what, what, what exactly do we mean by that as a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it simply meaning that we believe that Jesus existed, that Jesus was the Son of God? Certainly that's part of it. But it's got to be something more than that, doesn't it? If it's, it's a knowledge of something, it's an assent that it's true, and a commitment that causes us to live differently, what is that object? Well, certainly it's got to be that Jesus himself is the solution to this problem that we have. S simply put, that, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus came and was crucified on our behalf, and was raised to new life that if we trust in him, that we will be saved. As we read from Romans chapter 10, that whoever believes in him will be saved. It has a, there's a recognition that I can't save myself. A recognition that I need saving. And a belief that Jesus is the answer to that problem. So whatever Jesus brings, there has to be a problem that... He is solving. And that problem is, we saw it there in verse 3, that we are objects of wrath. 
And so it's a belief that Jesus came to bear the wrath that we deserve. And if we simply believe that Jesus takes that wrath from me, we will be saved. It's a simple thing, and yet that is so profound. And because it requires a humility to acknowledge that we are objects of wrath. Um, notice that he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And he says, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So we have to ask, what is this, this that he says? And to be honest, that is a very disputed thing. Because is the this he's talking about there, um, when he says, this is not of your own doing. He's talking about the salvation. Is he talking about the grace? Or is he talking about the faith? Or is he talking about something else? And scholars debate quite a bit, but I think the right answer, if we jump to the answer, is simply put that he is saying this, that whole phrase, that we are, have been saved by grace through faith. Every part of it is not of our doing. Every part of it is a gift of God. And notice that Paul says that the, he, he throws out these two negative statements. He says this is not of your own doing, and then it is not a result of works. So it's not of your own doing. It's not of yourselves, as other translations saying. And that makes sense. It makes sense from the grace standpoint, right? If, some, if somebody's being gracious to us, how could that be of our own doing? We are receiving that grace. And it also makes sense on the salvation standpoint that like, if we needed saving and we couldn't save ourselves, if we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we certainly couldn't save ourselves. That couldn't be of our doing. But what about faith? Certainly, it's my faith, right? I believe these things. So certainly, there couldn't, there's got to be some part of it that is mine. But what Paul says is, it is not your own doing. This, this is not your own faith. In fact, it's an alien faith. It's a faith that God gives to us. Which if we remember what Paul says about how we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. If there's a deadness a futility of our minds and our eyes and our hearts, and we are rebelling against the truth of who God is, we do need the gift of faith. That this faith has to be given to us. Um, God has to intervene and give us that so that we can see who this Christ is and cling to him. It's, it's a faith that allows us to see and grab hold of and to walk in. And so that faith is not of our own doing. But then he also says it's, this is uh, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Do you see how faith itself could be a work of yourself? If, if faith is something of, that you are working out, that you have come on your own power, now you've got, a, now you've got room for boasting. Because if there's anything in you that distinguishes you from someone other, some other person, that of yourself you cling to Christ and they don't, you've got grounds for boasting, don't you? If your intellect has caused you to understand these great doctrines or these great truths that God has ex extended to us, if, if it's your great upbringing with your family or your humility to recognize that you are a sinner in need of salvation, if there's anything in you 
you have worked faith in your heart and that gives you grounds for boasting because, man, you were humble enough. Yeah, you were smart enough. Yeah, you lived the right, in the right part of life. And now there's something that, that gives you that, that right to say, I'm, I've, I've got Jesus and you don't. But he says it's not a result of works. It's not a result of works that we have salvation because God had told us all throughout the Old Testament that all of the works that we do are filthy rags. It's, Hebrews says apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. There's not, a, there's not an unbeliever who's pleasing God because they lack the faith to please God. And so it's, it can't be uh, works to bring about the salvation, but even the faith itself can't be the work. That's how we know that it's not of ourselves. And um, in fact, if the, you have any knowledge of who this God is, if you have any faith to cling on to him, any love for the Lord, then know for certain that God himself has been at work in you. He's been at work in helping you to understand. He's been at work in changing your heart to receive these things. I, I know you don't understand it the way, you don't understand these things the way you want to, because I don't. And I know that you're, you're not living it out the way you want to, because none of us do. And yet be encouraged that if you have any faith, it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. There's literally nothing that you can do to earn salvation from our God. God must do all the work. He must soften our hearts. He must reveal himself to us, which he has. He must teach us these things, which he does. He must help us to understand them, which he does. And he must give us the desire to submit to them, which by his grace he does. He has to do all of it. How could we... How could we ever be filled with pride? We should be filled with praise that God himself has, has pursued after us to reveal himself to us, to rescue us for himself. Um, and, and there's an element which ought to drive us to humility with this, right? Because our desire often is to talk, make us prop ourselves up to think, well, I'm so smart because I figured all this stuff out and I'm clinging to Christ and these other guys aren't. But when we come to this and we're faced with it, it's only because of God's gracious work in our lives that we can receive these things. But it, it also ought to really, really encourage us because God, who purposes all of his holy will, purpose before the foundation of the world to save some people, to give eyes of faith to people to cling to Christ. And if we believe those things, that means that God has been purposing this in our own lives, uh, something he, he started before the foundation of the world, and he always accomplishes his means. And so if he is working faith in you, if he's pursuing faith in you, be, be encouraged. God will see it to completion. You know, you, it's not resting on your ability to hold it together. God is going to work it out. Our, our salvation is secure. And um, so we see that source is, is from God himself, but we can also be encouraged because of the result, the intended result 
of that salvation, which is one way that God works that faith to completion. And we see it there in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul had just said, our salvation is not a result of works. But perhaps a better way of saying it, it's not a result of our works. Because he turns around and he says, it is a result of God's works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. In fact, uh, everything about our salvation is God's work. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to work out that salvation with fear and trembling to perfectly do all of the righteousness that he had to do, that he required from the law. He perfectly worked by paying the price for his people. And so we are saved by works, but not by our works. We're saved by Christ's works. And if we ever thought that there was anything in us that was bringing about either our salvation or the good works that we do, notice what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So really, it's a recreation. But if, there, he's, if we are created in Christ Jesus, then that means that there's a creator. And it's just foolishness for us to think that we somehow create ourselves, that we somehow create new life when we are dead, that we somehow create this desire to please God apart from his work. No, he, he is the only creator. Not only did he create all things by the word of his power, but he creates us in Christ Jesus by giving us that new life. And, and notice what he says. He says, um, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, hopefully you caught this. But what did he say at the, at the beginning of the chapter? He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now he says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were dead in the things that we once walked, but now we have been recreated in Christ Jesus to walk in these good works in Christ Jesus. You know, you might be saying, well, hold on, time out, Mark. Now you're starting to talk about good works. Good works. This sounds like legalism or moralism or works righteousness. We believe in salvation by grace through faith. Works don't have a single part of it. And you're right that works don't have a part in our salvation. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. And yet... What we have to see is that works are an essential part of our salvation. In that, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we see this all throughout the scripture if we were, would only pay attention. Jesus himself said, let your light shine so that the world would see your good works and give glory to God. Apostle Paul said that we should perform deeds in keeping with our repentance. If we are repenting of our sins, we are dying to those old ways of living, those deeds of unrighteousness, wickedness, and we are walking in good works. In fact, the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, 
Paul's only talking about, almost exclusively talking about how we ought to live. These are the good works that he would have us do in keeping with who we are in Christ Jesus. We, we know about 2 Timothy chapter 3 where it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is used for all, for all these things, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. And if you were to read through the book of Titus, and I encourage you to do this, read through the book of Titus and circle all the times that you see Paul say something about good works. It's throughout. We read it as our assurance of pardon that we would be zealous. He, he purchased for himself a people who would be zealous, eager for good works. We we're supposed to show ourselves as a model for good works, remind them to be ready for every good work. We're saved not because of works, but to devote ourselves to good works. It's throughout. And then, of course, James chapter 2, which uh, Elder Broom read. Show me your faith apart from what you do, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Faith, true faith, salvation breeds good works. It's what the intent of that salvation is. There must be a holistic change, which makes sense if you think about what Paul has been saying. We were dead, but he's made us alive. Well, an alive person does something. They're not dead. They don't continue to be dead. They, they do something. What, what have they been, what are they to do? They're to not do what caused them to be dead, but they are to do what they have in new life. They, we were enslaved, enslaved to do only our passions and our sins and to follow the way of the world. But now we have been set free to live in a way that's pleasing to our God to honor him, to praise him, to be beneficial to one another. There must be a change. It's, it's a radical change. You are new creation. You are a new life. You've been recreated in Christ Jesus for these things. Um, but isn't it kind of weird? He says, uh, we're created, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So think about that for a second, students. Isn't a work something that happens when you do it? Like how can something, how can something that you do be, have been prepared beforehand? But that's exactly what it says, is that God has, whatever we do, God has prepared beforehand and that we would do them. Um, and again, that ought to humble us because what that means is that even after you've come to Christ, there is nothing that you can do that is above and beyond what God has created for you to do. That everything that you do is because God has prepared it for you to do. But again, it also ought to encourage you beyond measure to know that God has prepared good works for you to do. There's, there's a this disgusting feeling that we have knowing... Uh, of the things that we used to live in and how they brought death and how they brought sadness and pain. But God has prepared good works for us to do that we should walk in them. And so he will do it. This is his purpose. This is his intent. This is why he's created you in Christ. You will do those good works. Be encouraged by it. It will bring you joy and glory to our God. And it really ought to, not to surprise us too much if we think about it because 
God had prepared the works for his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did, he did because God had sent him to do it. Jesus said, I do these things, everything I do, I do, so that the world might know that I love the Father. That the Father, out of his great love for us, sent his Son to do these things. And so he, now he does these same things for us. And what a wonderful blessing, if you think about it. If Christ was the great worker on whom all of our salvation is based, and now we've been saved in Christ and united in him, then wouldn't it make sense that as a result, as fruit of that salvation, we get to participate in that work? And we talk about that as the body of Christ, that we now carry out that mission. We get to do that work which even Christ himself was doing. Now we get to be a part of that great and glorious redemption that he is working in the midst of this world. Um, so I guess we've got to ask the question, what are these works? If these works are so important, what are these good works? And I think uh, we, we really have to start with humility. Uh, the, the foundation of these good works is humility. It's the linchpin of all Christian life because without humility, we don't acknowledge that we even need to be saved. Without humility, we don't acknowledge that we need God to give us eyes to see what the, the truth is. We don't even see the need to change our patterns of life from the old to the new. Um, but so much of this passage, chapter 1 and 2, ought to drive us to humility, right? Because he's telling us that we were dead. We were objects of wrath. We were enslaved. So that was our doing. So we need God's intervention. But even that in chapter 1, like we said, that he would give us eyes to see. We, we need that humility as the basis to say, I'm going to empty myself of myself to try to gain what is filled up in Christ Jesus. I need to abandon my views of wisdom and knowledge and understand what it is that God says is true. It means not trying to live for myself, but living in accordance with what God calls me to do. That there's nothing good in me apart from Christ. That uh, everything that I am, everything that I do must be driven out of love for Christ. In fact, humility helps us to destroy our self-confidence and our self assurance in our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness and says, apart from Christ, I have nothing. That only in Christ do I have my sufficiency and my righteousness and my confidence. It drives us to Christ. But having been driven to Christ and realizing that everything that I do must be driven out of love for Christ, everything else flows from that. Everything else is the fruit of repentance from that. And remember that these are things that God has prepared for us to do. So from all eternity, God, out of his love for you and for me, foreordained a three-day backyard VBS program that we got to participate in. Some of us led, some of us volunteered, some of us 
supported. Some of us were kids who attended and learned. But God had worked out those good works for us to do. And from all eternity, God had planned for a cornerstone backpack drive that we might be able to help underprivileged kids with the, need, the, the needs that they have for school. And some of us got to shop and some of us got to you know, donate and some of us got to coordinate and all those things. And from all eternity, God planned to plant a new church in Prosper, Texas. And through the leadership of elders and the work of the presbytery and musicians and launch preparations and, and service and setup and Every part of it, these are part of the good works which God prepared for us to do so that we might bear the fruits in keeping with repentance. And imagine all the other things that God has in store for us to do. And these are the things that God gives to us that we might put into practice that faith, that we might prove that that faith that we have is real, that we might demonstrate that new life in Christ that we might be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the great worker and now we get a chance to work in it. It's for our benefit, for our joy, and for our sanctification. Uh, it's, this, is, this is the grace of our God. It's from, from, from start to finish. I mean, it's from start to finish. Uh, from giving us a Savior to giving us the faith to cling to him, and then giving us the opportunity to be united to him even in our works, to have the joy of being part of all that he does in this world, even as we see the transformation in our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. God is abundantly gracious to us, friends. He's a, it's amazing grace, and he's an amazing God. Let's pray together. Father, you are gracious to us. We've done nothing that, to deserve this amazing grace, but you are, you are wonderful and uh, altogether lovely. And we pray that you would help us to see what abundant grace it is that not only you've saved us, but that you've given us good work to do. Help us to work in it by the power of your spirit to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, our 